Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Amen and amen. Let's turn our Bibles now, church, to Mark chapter 3. We're going to finish up this third chapter of Mark. We're going to read verses 31 to 35 together as the body of Christ. As we do that, would you join me in standing if you're able to do so this morning? We're standing when we read the Word of God just merely to recognize that it is the holy word of God, infallible, inerrant, perfect in all that it says and affirms the truth that Christ has given to his people. We stand to recognize all that. And so let's listen now as God speaks to us through the sacred scriptures. Mark chapter three, verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, let's, let's uh, going to play a little Christmas game here together. I'm going to guess what's going to happen at your family gathering this weekend as you, or this week as you get together with your loved ones for, for Christmas. People are going to come over to your house. Uh, you're going to have guests and visitors in your home, family, or, or you're going to be a guest and a visitor in, in their homes. And I'm just going to guess some of the people that are going to show up. And if, uh, if I'm right, just kind of nudge somebody that's sitting next to you if you have somebody in your family like that. I'm going to guess that you have at least one nephew that stares at his phone the entire time that you're together as a family. And when asked big people questions, even though he's a teenager, he's just going to make guttural grunts to respond, and his face will be glowing with the light of the screen. I'm going to guess that you have a couple of family members that are pretty into the political thing happening right now, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to play defense to keep them apart from each other, right? You've got some people that love the president and other people that are critics, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be careful not to get them into the room At the same time, you've got a little of that going on in your family this season, don't you? I'm going to guess that you've got some people in your family, uh, maybe a sister-in-law, who knows, who's got some different political ideas than you, and you're going to have to be very careful with what you say, because maybe that person's a little bit more politically observant, politically correct, we might say, than you are, and you're going to have to be very careful with your words. And I'm going to guess, 
I'm just going to guess that you've got some fantasy football addicts in your family. Am I right on that? They're going to be paying more attention to their phones and their screens and what's happening at the, at the dinner table. I'm going to guess that you have a relative who smokes too much and probably has to stand on the porch the whole time because it's, it's cold out there and they don't want to smoke inside. And there's, there's probably a relative that maybe drinks a little bit too much and gets louder and louder as the family activity goes on. And I'm going to guess that there's at least one person in your family, and this is the important one, that's weird. At least one. And here's the rule on this. That if you can't find the weird person in your family, then it's probably you. And then there's your mother. Isn't she wonderful? She's probably making a homemade pie even right now, Christmas is still a couple of days off, and she is just wonderful. And family is, is such, a, such an amazing, beautiful gift to us. Our family, they delight us, they frustrate us, they wear us out, they're wonderful, they're charming, they're exasperating, and we all have different people in our family. We have matriarchs and we have patriarchs and we have loners and we have overachievers and we have people that are just plain, let's be honest, they're difficult to bear with, right? Am I, am I wrong? We have that and we have nieces and nephews that are adorable and they're lovable and cute and we have all of that. Our families, they're just a mixed group. They're a motley crew and we love them and we're not going to give up on them. We love them. We care about them and here's why. Because even though we didn't get to pick our family, they're still our family, right? Nobody gets to pick their family. And maybe, maybe some, in some rare cases with adoption, you do get to choose somebody or you marry somebody and bring them into your family. But the rest of us, we don't get to choose our family. God gives them to us. And even as frustrating as they may be to us from time to time, we never give up on them and we love them because at the end of the day, they're our family, and here in Mark's gospel in chapter three, we're finally coming now to a story about the family of Jesus Christ. Our Lord had a family. Have you ever thought about it that way? It's kind of interesting. Mark's gospel is different from Matthew and Luke because Matthew and Luke's gospel, they have what we might call the Christmas story in them. If you turn to Matthew and Luke, don't do it right now, uh, but if you did, you'd, you'd see Mary and Joseph right from the get-go, but Mark's gospel is not like that. And Mark's gospel, there is no Christmas story, so to speak. Mark's gospel just shoots out of a cannon, and before we know it, in chapter one, Jesus is already being baptized and going out and being tempted in the wilderness. Mark's gospel doesn't have those birth narratives that we're used to reading at the Christmas season that Matthew and Luke's gospel has. And so this really, in Mark chapter three, this is our first time to really pause and to look at the family of Jesus Christ and surprise, surprise, what do we see when we finally have a glimpse at the family of Christ? We see tension. Can you believe that? Tension, that's right. Because what's happening here in Mark chapter three, Mary and the brothers of Christ, did you even know Jesus had brothers? He does, the Bible tells us, Matthew 13, 55, that he had several brothers, four at least, and some sisters too. And here they are, and they've come to Christ now. 
because they're concerned about what's happening to Jesus and with Jesus. In fact, if you uh, look, same chapter, uh, go back a few verses to verse 20. We see the beginning of this family controversy, this family tension, and it says in chapter three, verse 20, then they went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. His family is concerned with Jesus. And so our context here in this passage in Mark chapter three is that Mary and the brothers, they're coming to Jesus. They wanna figure out what are you doing? Why are you gathering this crowd? Who are you? And so this passage in Mark begins with yet another controversy related to Jesus. We've already seen several controversies related to Christ and the Pharisees, Christ and the scribes. Now we've got a third controversy. Jesus is in his own family. So if your family has a little bit of tension, a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of struggle, that's okay. So did the family of Christ. Well, what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna look at family, a theology of family, as a matter of fact, if you have your bulletin, there are notes, some notes in there to help you to follow along. We're gonna look at family from three different perspectives this morning. First of all, we're gonna see a blood family divided. A blood family divided. That would be the family of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're gonna look at that, in, particularly in verse 31 and 32. After that, after we see the division between the family of Jesus, we're gonna look number two then at how Jesus declares a new family. So we'll see a new family being declared, a new kind of family, we might say. That's verse 33 and 34. And then finally, the third point is we're gonna look at a true family defined then from verse 35. All right, so that's the outline for us. Let's go ahead and dig in. Bibles are still open. Let's look back at the text and make sure we're dealing with this carefully here. Look at verse 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, maybe in your family you've had uh, what is commonly called today an intervention. Are you familiar with that term? An intervention is when somebody kind of goes off the deep end, whether uh, maybe drugs and alcohol or they get into some weird stuff. And so what the family does is they gather around that person and they sit that person down and they try to basically talk some sense into that person. All right, well, believe it or not, that's what we see happening here in Mark chapter three because the family itself, the blood family of Jesus is divided about who he is and what he's doing. So what they're gonna do is actually the right thing to do that is, they come right to Jesus. They come right to the source. If you have a problem with a family member, you don't gossip about that person. You go to that person and you talk to them. You say, what's the deal? What's going on? And that's what they're doing here. They're coming to Jesus to say, what's the deal? What's going on? Now, I, I regard it this way, all right? I believe that Mary and Joseph were true believers, okay? Mary and Joseph, I chalk them up as true believers, and here's the reason I do that, because everything that we have from Matthew and from Luke would seem to indicate to us that they, that they believe. Like Mary and Joseph, they're followers. 
Okay, they, they, they believe in their son. Now, I'm just gonna do this real quick and maybe, uh, maybe it'll, you'll have a hard time following me, but I'm gonna jump real quick. In Luke's gospel, Mary receives a vision, an angelic vision. This is Luke chapter one. And what does she say when she finds that she's going to be the bearer of the Christ child? Her, here's her response. This is uh, Luke 1.38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's something a believer would say right? Here, she's going to bury the, she's going to bear, I should say, bear the Christ in her own belly, in her own womb, and what is her response to the shocking news? She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then she goes on in the same chapter, this is Luke 1, and she sings this beautiful song that has become known as the Magnificat, Okay, from the first words in the Latin, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And everything we have about Mary throughout the rest of the Gospels and even into the book of Acts would seem to indicate that Mary is a believer. She's even there, even in the early church in the book of Acts, she's still there. She's at the cross even watching her son die. I take Mary to be a true believer. Same thing with Joseph, I do. I think Joseph was a believer in his own son. When Joseph receives the angelic vision, we can read about this in, in Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, chapter one, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now listen to this. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Everything we have about Joseph would seem to indicate that he's a believer. He obeys and what do Mary and Joseph do when King Herod is threatening they take their child to Egypt to protect him and to keep him away from that infanticidal maniac, King Herod. But what about the brothers of Jesus? Well, here, I think, is where the dividing line is in the blood family of Jesus. Check this out, all right? Matthew's Gospel, 1355, tells us the name of at least four brothers of Jesus and that he had sisters as well. And in John's Gospel, I realize I'm flipping around, John chapter 7, verse 5 tells the story of the disciples going to the Feast of Booths, and it says this, John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed in him. There's a dividing line. His brothers, his blood brothers, according to John 7, 5, did not believe in him. And we can understand that. How many among of, of us would have a hard time worshiping our older brother? Be a little bit difficult, be a little bit strange, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and yet, here's the good news. The good news is that even James and Jude, the Lord's brothers, would eventually be converted. I, I believe that conversion most likely took place at the resurrection when Jesus was killed and raised again. That would be the incontrovertible proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And James, his brother, goes on to write the book of James, and Jude, his other brother, goes on to write the book of Jude, and they become pillars and leaders within the early church. But not at this moment. In this moment, in Mark chapter three, our text today, the family is divided. And that's probably true for your family as well as for mine, that we have believers in our families, 
and we have unbelievers. We have those who love and treasure Christ and are willing to be obedient to him, and we probably have some who are skeptical, doubters, if not full-on antagonists to the Christian faith. Is that true for your family? You don't have to raise your hand, but is that, am I wrong? I just want to encourage you this morning that, that that is true for a lot of us, and I will tell you that some of the greatest tension that you will have in the Christian faith, some of the greatest difficulties you will have will be in relationship to family members that do not believe. But you must continue to pray for them. You must continue to love them. You must continue to witness to them. And no matter what, no matter who believes and who does not, no matter who joins us in the faith or no matter who rejects us or disparages us, we must absolutely hold fast to Christ. Amen? Even if the blood family is divided. Now let's go on to the, to the next point here and look at the new family declared. This is verse 33 and 34. And Jesus said to them, he asks them, really, who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. So I take this to mean that Mary and the brothers are still at the door. Here's a little conversation Jesus is going to have with those who are seated with him while they're still at the door. A little bit awkward, yeah? A little bit awkward there? By the way, where's Joseph in this? Did you notice Joseph is not named here? Joseph, interestingly enough, the last time we see him alive for sure is when Jesus goes to the temple at age 12. That's the last time we can confirm proof of life that Joseph is still alive. He's not here now. Uh, when Jesus goes public with his ministry, people remember Joseph and they say, oh, Jesus, isn't that, isn't that Joseph's son, the son of the carpenter? So, so he's probably been long, alive long enough to remember, but a lot of scholars believe that Joseph might have already died by this point. I don't know that for sure. That's the conjecture, but some scholars believe that Joseph has already died by this point. At least he does not show up in this scene here in Mark chapter 3. But as they're standing out of the door, can you almost imagine the tension there? Jesus then declares that he has a new family. This is not to insult or disparage his blood family. That's not what he's doing. But he's declaring a new family to be in existence. Jesus has the authority and the power to declare to bring into existence a new family that did not exist before. And so let's picture the scene here. What kinds of people might have been gathered together around Jesus in this moment? Who was there? Who do you think? Think about this. Who do we know from our experience in Mark's gospel already? Who do we know were the kinds of people that loved Jesus to be around him? Tax collectors? Lepers, sinners, disabled folks that Jesus would heal, people that had been oppressed by demonic forces that Jesus freed. And so you have, you have this really colorful group, let's just say it that way, this really colorful group of people around Jesus. And Jesus has the authority to declare the existence of a new family. And in this very moment, he says, these these are my mother and my brothers. He declares and calls into existence a new family, the new family of faith. And we have 
too, as Christians. We have a new love and appreciation for, don't we? The people that are not necessarily even related to us in any way. Because we are Christians, we've been called into this new family, this greater family. You have your blood family, and then you have your blood of Christ family. And we can begin to see people and love them, truly love them. Here's the point. Why? Why can we love these people that are so different from us? Because we have first been loved by Christ. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've been several different places on the mission field. I've been to Africa, I've been to Thailand, I've been to Mexico, I've been to El Salvador, I've been to Ukraine, I've been to Scotland. Everywhere I go, whenever I meet another Christian, there's this instant bond and connection that we have, even if we've never even met each other before. Why? Because we have Christ in common. And you can immediately begin to love people that are different from you, different language, different color, different economic status, whatever it is, and we can love these people. Why? Because we've first been loved by Christ. And so we find that instead of our hearts uh, being more you know, uh, minimized and, and, and diminished, that instead the very opposite happens for we who are in Christ is that our hearts are actually expanded so that we can love more and more people, even people that are crazy different from us because of Christ, he first loved us. And so I'm gonna gonna call that experience, when you realize that you're part of a new family, a greater family, I'm gonna call that the existential shift that takes place in our lives. We, We go through, as Christians, an existential shift. What do I mean by this? I mean by the very fact that we've encountered the love of Jesus Christ we now have a whole new category of love for other people that we had not before we were Christians. Why is that? It's true because meeting Jesus as our Savior is such a radical transformation that virtually everything changes for us from that point on. Does, Does this make sense? Like, okay, so the Bible has all kinds of different terms that it uses to describe conversion to the faith. Sometimes the Bible calls it simply salvation. We've been saved. Saved from what? From hell, from death, from sin, from guilt, from shame. We've been saved, the Bible says. Sometimes the Bible describes it as being born again. It's almost like like we were born once, like these newborn babies that we're celebrating this week. But when we met Christ, it was a new life such that our old life is gone and a new life has come, okay? The technical term for that is regeneration. The Bible has all kinds of pictures for this existential shift that's taken place in our lives. Sometimes it calls it crossing over from death to life, or sometimes it calls it living in the light instead of in the darkness, or sometimes it calls it putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new. My point here is simply this. When we were saved by Christ, It was such a radical and thorough transformation for us that literally everything changes, even the people that we would look upon and say, that's my brother. That's my family. And this change, this transformation that occurs because of who Christ is for us is so profound that it's not just family that changes, but we begin to see everything differently, don't we? We begin to see believers differently because we are among them. We we begin to understand people's 
struggles and trials and difficulties in life, even if we haven't walked through them personally ourselves, but we find ourselves being able to empathize and relate to other believers in ways that we had not before. We even look at unbelievers differently than we used to, and here's why. Because we used to be unbelievers, for goodness sakes. Right? We don't need to get mad at them. We don't need to hate them. We don't need to cast them off. We don't need to disparage unbelievers. For goodness sakes, we used to be unbelievers before Christ saved us by his grace alone. So we look at everything different. We look at our nation different. We can look above the bipolarity of our nation because we don't need to necessarily see things as either of the political parties tell us we must. We can see things differently. We're new. We're made new. Even our vocation, our job, is no longer just a job for us anymore, but it's an opportunity for us to be witnesses for Christ, living for his glory. And so, yes, of course, we're going to see family differently now that we've experienced the love of Jesus Christ. Third, then what is it? Well, Jesus gives us the perfect definition of the true family defined here in verse 35. Look carefully at this verse. The true family now is defined for us as follows. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so Jesus spells out the principle here really plainly. Your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your family, etc., are those who are related to you by virtue of knowing Christ as you know him. If you want a picture for this, picture the old hub and the spokes analogy. Okay, can you picture that? You got a hub in the center, spokes going off in every direction. You are related to every single person in this geometric shape because you are related to the one in the center. Okay? So if you know Christ as Savior, and I know Christ as Savior, that makes us in direct relationship to one another. And so the key for us is we don't necessarily look at ethnic descendancy. We don't need to look at genealogical family trees to find out who my family is. We don't need to look at race. We don't need to look at class. We don't need to look at age. We don't need to look at intelligence. We don't need to look at socioeconomic status or whatever language we used to speak or how we dress. We, don't, we throw all that nonsense off and we say we are related to one another because we are related to the Christ in a saving, covenantal, radical way. Now let me make just a couple of clarifications about this verse. I do think it has the potential to get us on the wrong direction just a little bit because of the phrase, does the will of God. So does the will of God. If the first thing you think of there when you see the phrase, does the will of God, is that there's a certain amount of works or religious merit that you need to attain for yourself, almost like a Boy Scout having to get all the right badges in all the right place on your little sash, okay? Don't think of it that way. This is not a level of attainment. This is not a a rank. You have to get enough merit badges within the kingdom. When Jesus says, does the will of God, he's not talking about uh, your number of good deeds that you need to accomplish to finally break it into the family. That's not what Jesus is talking here. When Jesus says, does the will of God, he's simply talking about the reality of your transformation or the essential nature of your conversion, this newness of life. And so what Jesus declares here is that there is a family that's greater than family. 
Now, let me just, let me just refute, if I can, a couple of, a couple of secular ideas. You know, secularism is the, the godless worldview, okay? A couple of ideas that I, I, I think this refutes. The first from the secular world is, is there's this kind of sentimental view that all human beings are family, uh, no matter what we believe or what we look like or what we do. There's this idea that all of humanity is one. You see this kind of in those coexist bumper stickers. You know which bumper stickers I'm talking about, those coexist ones. It's kind of a sentimental view. We're all related to each other. Well, there's a sense in which that's true. I guess we all bear the imago Dei. We all have the image of God. We're all human beings. We're all sinners. We definitely have a lot in common. But that's not what Jesus is saying here, is it? This isn't the sentimental view of the oneness of humanity. Jesus is actually saying there's a new family that's different from the old family and the dividing line that separates us is whether or not we believe in Christ. There is the family of faith and there is what John, uh, John 8 says, Jesus says this, not me, I didn't make this up, but Jesus says in John 8 there, there are children of God and there are children of the devil. What is the difference? It is whether or not we are savingly related to Christ as our Redeemer. Okay? The second secular view that I think this just destroys is this, this new concept of intersectionality. Have you heard of this? You should have heard of this by now. Intersectionality is actually an idea not to unite us, but to divide us on every possible dividing line, especially race, especially gender, especially sexuality, and especially socioeconomic status. And the new idea in the, the progressive secularism is that we should divide each other very carefully, stratifying each other, building tension with each other, resenting each other, and I have to say, that this is good news destroying the false teaching of intersectionality. Jesus says that we are one in Christ. Really important stuff here. Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? You ever heard somebody say that before? Raise your hand if you've heard somebody say blood. What, what does that mean? Basically, it means like, I can make fun of my younger brother, but you can't because he's my brother. And you say, blood is thicker than water. It's an indication that your family is always gonna be the closest people to you. And that's true, blood is thicker than water. But the point of this text is simply this. Blood is thicker than water, but the blood of Christ is thicker than blood. There's a greater, stronger, larger, more glorious family, and it is the household of faith. Now, real quick, in just a couple of minutes, and I'm going to do this fast, is I want to give a couple of applications to this teaching from the text today. A, this is, this is letter A. Your identity is now in Jesus Christ, and that identity is more important and outranks any other identity you might have had or brought into the saving relationship with Christ. Here's what I mean. Like, you're never going to be alone anymore. You are, you are never going to be cast off. You are never going to be a loner now. You are always going to have a family that loves you. You never have to worry. You never have to doubt that you're not going to fit in. You will always fit in because of Christ. John, 1 John says something like this. See how great is his love 
for the children of God, and indeed we are. So we are the children of God. So our primary identity now, we are not gonna be orphans, we're not gonna be unloved, we're not gonna be unfathered, we're not gonna be uncared for, we're not gonna be unattended. Our great and true identity now is in him, and that is going to unite us to one another. B, if that's true, then we're gonna need one another in many and various ways. We need each other. We need each other. None of us is sufficient alone. Life is too hard. Life is too brutal to make it alone. Life is too difficult. Life is too rigorous. If you try to do life on your own, it will tear you apart. It will grind you to smithereens. We need each other, Christians. We're gonna face a lot of temptations. We're gonna face a lot of difficulties. And if we need each other, then we better learn to get along with each other because there are no only children in the children of God. Christ is the only son of the Father, but the rest of us, we are adopted into the family, and so we need to learn to love each other, forgive each other, apologize, and receive forgiveness. Pray for each other, serve each other, confess to each other, help each other. Finally, see, we may not neglect our blood relatives for the sake of our blood of Christ relatives. Can't do that. You know what I mean by that? You can't neglect your true blood relatives because of the new blood of Christ relatives. The scripture forbids that. So we still have to take care of our family members. We still have to love them. We still have to pray for them. The scripture does not give us permission to deny or to neglect or to cast off or to refuse or to scorn our, blood of, our, our family genetic blood relatives because we are in the family of faith, so we cannot do that. Heavenly Father, we, we ask for your help today because family is particularly difficult. Our family stretches us in various ways that, that want to challenge our, our patience, And yet our, our family desperately needs you, Lord Jesus Christ, as much as we ever needed you. And so I'm praying, Lord, that as we encounter mothers and fathers and in-laws and aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and nieces, that we would live in such a gracious, delightful way that they would see the light of Christ and inquire as to what makes us different as the people of God. And Lord, for those of us who are in the family of light, help us to love each other, honor each other, care for each other, pray for each other. For we truly need you above all things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we're gonna sing now hymn number 196, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Will you stand with me as we sing? Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.